This is Sam Torres, Texas Longhorn fan, native Austinite, admissions counselor, and your host with the most. And this is Texas 512. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Texas 512. This is Sam Torres, your host with the most. And today um, I have a very special guest. Um, He's a very important member of the UT Austin community, and we'll actually be talking about Heeman Sweat, who is a very important figure, not just in UT history, but in higher education history all across the country um, and in civil rights history as well. Dr. Edmund Gordon, um, he is a founding and former chair of the African and African Diaspora Studies Department. He's also the Associate Professor of African and African Diaspora Studies and Anthropology of the African Diaspora and Vice Provost for Diversity at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Gordon also used to serve as the Associate Vice President of Thematic Initiatives and Community Engagement at the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement, as well as serving as the former director of the Center for African and African American Studies at UT Austin. His teaching and research interests include culture and the African diaspora, gender studies, particularly for black males, critical race theory, race education, and the racial economy of space and resources. So um, I believe he is more than qualified to uh, talk about uh, Mr. Heeman Sweat today. Um, And we're going to get to learn a little bit more about UT's history with that, um, as well as, again, history all across uh, higher education across the country. So I'm really excited about today's conversation. We're going to throw it to a quick break. And when we get back, um, Dr. Gordon will join us. He'll tell us a little bit more about himself and he will talk with us about human sweat. So don't go away. We will be right back. back. Um, So now I actually have Dr. Gordon here with me. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, So I I wanted to start off by kind of uh, getting to know a little bit more about you before we start getting into the story about human sweat. Well, why am I working at UTOS in the current capacity that I am? So my capacity at this point is I'm an associate professor in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies. And I also work as a vice provost for diversity in the provost office. Uh, Why am I here? Uh, I didn't initially want to have uh, an academic career, although I uh, went all the way through and got a PhD. Um, The reason I got a PhD in anthropology is I wanted to be able to understand uh, how uh, the social world works. Uh, in order to be able to transform it and change it. Um, I didn't initially go into academia because I wasn't clear to me that um, academia was a place from which the world could be changed. I took an academic position here at the University of Texas at Austin because in some sense that was what I was trained to do and I had to feed a family. So I took the job and uh, 
here at the University of Texas over the last 30 plus years. What I've tried to do is to use the skills that I have as a scholar and academic to be able to understand the world better, uh, to be able to teach that mode of understanding the world better, and hopefully to be able to do what I can to change the world and have the folks who I teach do so as well. Awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, it does sound, as you mentioned, and, and I read your bio that you, you do have a lot of responsibilities on your plate. It seems like you wear many hats here at UT Austin. And, you know, I know that the current situation that we're in has been hard on a lot of us. And so I kind of wanted to see how do you manage your time? How do you, and how do you, you know, relieve stress or, you know, how, just how have you been handling everything? Well, I'm not sure what you're talking about in terms of everything. I, I guess one thing is uh, the pandemic and the way I handle my stress from the hand pandemic is try to stay home. Uh, I'm a 69 year old. I don't want to die. Uh, and this pandemic is serious business. So that aspect of it, uh, I find things less stressful if I don't expose myself uh, to uh, the disease and try to not have other people uh, get exposed to the disease and that's the way I'm dealing with that. So uh, I've got a nice house and a nice place and so it's not that much of a strain as opposed to uh, other people who places are not as nice as mine are. Mine is people who have children they have to try to educate at the same time. Mine are older and so I'm in relatively good shape in relationship to that. In terms of the other aspects of my life, these are particularly stressful times. Um, as you know, we just had a group of folks try to subvert the, uh, the most recent election. Um, those folks, I woke up this morning to news from the federal government that there were people who uh, were associated with that attempt to undermine the democratic process here uh, are also trying to foment race war. When you're talking about fomenting race war as a black person, what the federal government is telling me is that there are portions of the country that are against me and fomenting war against me as a black person. That's pretty stressful. And so what I'm trying to do is to continue to engage in the kind of activities, even if it means I'm engaged in a, in a wide variety of them, to uh, avoid, well, to avoid race war, uh, but even beyond that, to avoid losing a race war. Mm. Um, black folks' position in, in this country has always been marginal, remains marginal, and uh, it is a struggle, uh, one that I uh, continually engage in to try to make us part of what this country is supposed to be. But one thing I do is I teach. Mm -hmm. uh, I also was a member of the AISD, Austin Independent School District um, School Board, and tried to have an impact on education and uh, to try to improve the relatively bad job that our school districts do in terms of educating uh, black and brown kids. Um, I also, in my position as uh, Vice Provost of Diversity, have been attempting to make the institution uh, through organization, policy, administration, et cetera, a more equitable and inclusive place on a daily basis. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, kind of going on with with more of, of what you've accomplished here at the university, um, as I mentioned, I had read your bio earlier and you were um, the founder of the African and African Diaspora Studies Department. And so I was curious to hear how your experience was with founding that department and what what did it take to actually bring the department into existence at UT Austin? 30 years it took 30 years to learn how the institution operates Mm -hmm. to be able to learn how to work within the the uh, institutional bureaucracy um to wait for the proper moment when a space opened up and to uh create the kinds of intellectual let's call them scholarly collectives that uh, could mobilize to both create the possibility of a department but also to to take advantage of the space when it opened to be able to have the department become a reality a long time mm-hmm. and a lot of concentrated work by a collective of people who um who have a particular set of goals and who are prepared to do the work necessary to reach those goals it sounds like a platitude but it true yeah for sure well um you got through all of my questions for the first segment already so i guess we could go ahead and jump into a little bit of uh about you know the story of heman sweat and so heman marion sweat applied for admission to the university of texas law school in 1946 but was denied admission on the basis of race mr sweat with the help and assistance of the NAACP brought legal action against the university. In the Langmark case, uh, Sweat versus Painter, the United States Supreme Court ruled that separate law school facilities could not provide a legal education equal to that available at the University of Texas Law School, one of the nation's ranking law schools. The Supreme Court ruling established an important precedent for the desegregation of graduate and professional schools, challenging the separate but equal doctrine the court affirmed Mr. Sweat's right to equal educational opportunity and in 1950, he entered the University of Texas School of Law. The Sweat decision helped pave the way for African-Americans admissions to formerly segregated colleges and universities across the nation and led to the overturn of segregation by law in all levels of public education in the Langmark case of Brown v. Board of Education four years later. Now, this summary does cover quite a bit of what his, uh, basically what what Heman Sweat's um, legacy has essentially uh, caused for higher education through Throughout the years. And so I wanted to pretty much just ask you if there was anything in that summary that you wanted to elaborate on, or maybe something that was missed in that short summary that that's of importance in, in what he was able to do for higher education for generations to come. Uh, one thing is, um, you know, it signals out human sweat and his heroic fight to desegregate the University of Texas at Austin. And that is, you know, he was indeed heroic and the university, I I think, is going to recognize some of that heroism. Um, But it doesn't say anything about the sacrifices that uh, he made in order to be able to open up uh, the doors in the way that he did. Mm -hmm. So it took, you know, he, as it says here, he uh, applied for admission in 1946 and it wasn't until 1950 that he was finally admitted well that means that there was four years in which he dedicated his life to uh, attempt to open up these doors uh 
And then there was one year when he was a law student here. And along the way, he uh, lost his wife. Um, they split up uh, under the pressures of the lawsuit and his being uh, under the pressures of the lawsuit. Uh, he lost his health. Uh, he uh, had a series of medical problems and medical collapses, et cetera. He made it only through one year of the law school. And the dean of the law school in uh, his correspondence, you know, basically said it was because he was not uh, educationally prepared for the rigors of the UT law school, uh, which mm -hmm. didn't have anything. In other words, he did admit the kinds of pressures, sacrifices, uh, mental and physical health problems that fighting the university for six years uh can take on a person uh, and blamed his lack of success on him. So it's the ultimate sacrifice in that sense. Um, that doesn't get reflected in that short thing. The other thing that doesn't get reflected there is, is who was complicit in um, the struggle to keep uh, sweat out. Now, Painter gets much of the blame because his name is on the the Supreme Court decision. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is the power structure of the state um, was refused to allow the integration, the racial integration of the University of Texas. So this wasn't Painter's decision alone. It may not even been his his personal preference, but Painter was a compromised president. He was put into power with no process uh, by the Board of Regents uh, after they fired uh, Homer Rainey, who was the previous president of the university previous president of the University of Texas and who was accused of harboring communists, professors, and also queer faculty members and students. Um, and so they got rid of him and they put Painter in and Painter therefore was their creature. So Painter's effort to keep sweat out had to do with the power structure of the state, making sure that the University of Texas would be an all white, white supremacist institution. Right. It's Organizing the other thing that this doesn't say it mentions the NAACP, but the NAACP as an organization, right, um, was organized itself uh, was looking for um, candidates to help challenge uh, the segregation of professional schools in this country. Heman Sweat volunteered for that role, and it was heroes like Thurgood Marshall and Lulu White, who was uh, one of the NAACP leaders from um, from Houston, who actually waged the struggle alongside Sweat to to open this up. And so the collective, uh, the collective of the NAACP and the collective of the Black community in um, in Texas, uh, and the role that that collective played in opening up the University of Texas to racial desegregation um, doesn't show up in that either. Well, one of the things that, that you know also gets uh, ignored in a statement like this is that it wasn't the entire University of Texas right. that was against uh, desegregation. In other words, there were faculty members and students on the campus of the University of Texas who played a role in trying to pressure the university into opening up. And so just like today, the, uh, 
the students, or at least a portion of the students and a portion of the faculty of the university were much more racially liberal than the state uh, power structure. And so um, it's not like the entire University of Texas was against human sweat. A significant and important portion of the university was all in favor of desegregation, but had to be um, hmm, suppressed. That had to be suppressed by this, you know, the state's hierarchy and by the president and, and his administration. So that's something that doesn't get talked about much either. Um, most people also don't recognize that, and this statement does say that, but don't recognize that it took another six years before undergraduates could come to the University of Texas. And it took 14 years from 1950 until either graduate students or undergraduate students who are black could stay on campus in an integrated dorm. Um, and so the human sweat case, human sweat, the sweat versus painter case, and the winning of the sweat versus painter case by sweat in the NAACP was only the beginning of desegregation rather than an end of itself. Uh, it, it was an important precursor to the 1954 um, Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision, which basically desegregated schools at all levels in, in this country. Um, but again, it wasn't until 1964 that black students could stay in integrated dorms on campus and eat in the integrated cafeterias. Right. And, and, you know, besides desegregation of colleges and universities, um, do you think that this case had any other significant effects on higher education today or throughout the years? I, it, it certainly paved the way for um, higher education to understand that there are different kinds of knowledges that are associated with different kinds of positionalities. And let me explain by what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. So the integration of a, of a university like the University of Texas, in other words, permitting black bodies to be on campus, was only part of what it means to create a, a diverse and inclusive higher educational setting. What having more black people and more Latinx people and more Asian American people and more Native American people and, and more women on a campus like this also meant is that the different kind, the different positionalities of those folks um, mean that there are different aspects of knowledge and aspects of reality that are important and different kinds of takes on the social processes that make those important. And so it it's not possible to have black studies or ethnic studies or any of these kinds of studies or the kinds of work that um, critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical, critical sexuality uh, work, et cetera, those were not possible until you got different kinds of bodies on the campus who could begin to push for those things and who also could um, begin to demonstrate that there are different ways of understanding the world that are important in a, an institutional higher education like this one. So that's, that's one uh, other aspect of this. Uh, I, I think also the racial desegregation of the university also helped to lead to the uh, the opening up of the university uh, in a gendered sense as well. Um, for many years, the university, in fact, from its beginning, the University of Texas uh, included women as students. 
but women were generally restricted and even today are somewhat restricted to certain kinds of disciplines. And I think the opening up of the university in a racial sense also was an impetus um, for the opening up of the university in a gendered sense as well, that, that you know, women could be and should be welcome in all kinds of fields rather than in just some. Definitely. And I think this segues perfectly into the last question that I have for you. Um, and so, you know, in your your position, um, I, I think this is especially important that to, to recognize, you know, that there seems to be a problem across universities uh, across the country with a lack of diversity. And this isn't just the case with the student body, but also with their workforce. And so I wanted to ask you what you think are, are some of the challenges with recruiting and retaining minority faculty and staff members and what would you grade UT Austin in the current efforts that it has right now? Well, the challenges are legion. One is that because of the history of white supremacy in this country, and it's a history of white supremacy that was reproduced in the institutions of higher education and all the educational level leading up to higher education, um, the pools of eligible candidates for positions in a university like the University of Texas, a research one university, um, are less robust than they would have been if we didn't have that 300 year of history of white supremacy. So there's one problem. Mm -hmm. But because the pools are not as robust as they should be doesn't mean that there are not people of color and women out there who can be recruited and who should be recruited to uh, positions, faculty positions here at the University of Texas. Um, but there are other issues. One is that oftentimes faculty members at a university like this one are basically the ones who make the decisions as to what kind of research is valid, mm -hmm. where that research should be placed in terms of publication, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so therefore they are the arbiters of value and merit in the people who get chosen to join the university, the intellectual community of the university. Um, and many times what they consider to be meritorious um, is a reproduction of what they themselves have done or are doing. Uh, and also reproduces the kind of the narrownesses and the prejudices of the past. And so therefore, merit often is not recognized mm -hmm. um, by those who are the gatekeepers for faculty positions at a university like this. So that's another um, set of issues. Beyond that, um, the top people of color and the top women uh, in any field in this country have uh, a variety of, of different opportunities um, uh, as to where it is that they're going to be employed. In other words, all universities in this, all the top universities in this country are looking for uh, excellence uh, in, in terms of uh, the faculty that they hire. That means that anybody that the university as a research one institution uh, wishes to hire is probably, especially if they're people of color and also women in certain fields, is going to have a plethora of different kinds of opportunities. Uh, so we're in a we're in competition with other 
um, prestigious institutions for a relatively limited pool of, uh, of potential faculty members. So that's another problem. So there's, there's a whole number of reasons why it's difficult to recruit uh, and retain uh, underrepresented faculty members here doesn't mean it can't be done and actually the University of Texas has done a, a, a better job of it than other institutions that are similarly situated and located and we're also in, currently involved in trying to, to put into place policies and other kinds of mechanisms to be able to be competitive in terms of attracting people here and also in terms of keeping people here but it is a challenge. Yeah, for sure. I can imagine with all of that that you mentioned. And I mean, what if you don't mind sharing something that the the UT has done in order to to offset some of those challenges? Well, we we have uh, been trying to offer resources to faculty and particularly faculty search committees. Um, which uh, try to institute best practices in terms of doing um, the kind of recruiting which can both create diverse pools for hiring, but also uh, we hope can have uh, outcomes uh, in which we're attracting faculty members and hiring faculty members who have the skills and knowledges to contribute to the diversity diversity and inclusivity of the institution. So we're engaged in that. You remember I said that there uh, that many times faculty members, it, it can be implicit or, or you know, inadvertently uh, only look for certain kinds of excellence. And so we're trying to kind of train people or give people the resources to be able to break, you know, break free of those kinds of things. We're also uh, in some places have uh, uh, done uh, thematic hiring which uh, makes, that's hiring where we're looking for people who are working in particular kinds of areas of uh, academic interest. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And those academic areas of academic interest uh, uh, have turned out to be attractive to a diverse, uh, a more diverse pool of candidates uh, than might otherwise uh, be the case. Working on issues, for example, of uh, disparities in healthcare or uh, educational disparities, et cetera, et cetera. And that's another way to uh, to attract um, folks to our pools, to attract uh, uh, a diverse uh, pool of folks to um, to our uh, faculty recruitment. Uh, uh, pools. Uh, so we're, we're trying to be uh, intentional in those kinds of ways. We, we also have, uh, you know, tried to establish a reputation for the University of Texas uh, nationwide as not only a, a in intellectual community of uh, of, of excellence, but also a welcoming intellectual community. So we've done kind of national advertising around those areas. So there are a number of ways in which we've been working on this. Fantastic. That's great to hear. Um, so that was pretty much the last question that I have for you. Um, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. And usually in this segment, I allow my guests to essentially um, plug in anything that they want or shout out anything that they want. So if there's anything that you may be working on, something that you want our listeners to check out or anything like that. Now's the time if, if there's anything that you want to share with us. Well, the only thing I'll plug is, is uh, the racial geography tour. Uh, if you're interested in the history of the University of Texas, particularly the racial and gendered history of the University of Texas, uh, there is something called the racialgeographytour.org, all one word. 
that is my attempt to, um, to provide a history of this institution through its, uh, its campus structures um, and a history which talks about the racial attitudes and the racial progress and lack thereof over the history of the institution. So I'll plug that. Awesome. I've actually heard really good things about that tour. Um, we usually offer it for training um, in our office, like almost every year. So I was hoping to take it this year, but hopefully, you know, once everything goes back to normal, I'll get an opportunity to do so. Well, there's a walking tour, but it's also a digital tour. So you don't have to get oh, out cool. of your bedroom in order to be able to go on this tour if you don't want. Awesome. So y'all heard it here first. Y'all can go ahead and check that out online. But Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for taking the time to have a conversation with me about Heman Sweat and some of the history of UT Austin. Um, and thanks to our listeners for checking us out today. Um, this is Sam Torres. Thanks for listening today. And I will see you in the next episode.